welcome to Beyond Politics. This is, we're picking this up. If you just listened to part one of this discussion between me and Corey Nathan, the host of Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Corey, I have notes on the length of your title, but otherwise I love this show name. I love it. It's very descriptive. But this is part two. So if you haven't heard part one yet, what I want you to do, I never want people to stop listening to my show. I always want them to keep listening and I want them to subscribe and I want them to go to Apple Podcasts. I want them to leave us a review. I want all of those things. I have many wants in the world. But the very first thing that I'd like you to do is pop over to talk in politics and religion without killing each other and listen to part one so that part two makes sense to you. And also while you're there, hit that follow button, that subscribe button so that you can listen to more of Corey Nathan and all the great sorcery that he's got cooking over there. And then come back here and listen to part two. Corey, welcome uh, over to my side of the, the ledger. It is great to be with you. It's great to still be with you, actually. So yeah, thanks we're, for having we're, me we're on, picking man. this right up. Other yeah. shows that do home and homes, they'll take a break. They'll do an intermission. They'll go to the bathroom. We're doing none of those things. We are just rolling right through rolling. from part one. Let me ask you this. I know we, we teased at the end of the last show that you have a question. I got to admit, I don't know what the TPNR question is. So I'm very excited about this. Let's take advantage of the curiosity gap here for our audience. We will get to that question in a few minutes. I okay. want to ask you about you first. First yeah. of all, were you informed by the movie Snakes on a Plane when you took your approach to naming your podcast? Because it feels like you're really giving, you know what you're going to see if you go to see Snakes on a Plane? You're going to see Snakes on a Plane. Your show title is very descriptive. How did you come up with it? Oh, so it's just, I wish that I was a good enough brand marketer to have distilled that to maybe a word or two, faithful politics like my buddies who came up with it and their great show, or Curtis Chang and David French had a good one on the Dispatch, or Curtis is still running that show. I wish I, but at the end of the day, I kept on, what's the show about? It's about talking politics and religion without killing each other. So eventually that just became the name. I thought it was gonna be a hook to just put my thing on until we came up with a better name, but it just stuck. Talk politics and religion without killing each other. It's that's like who that we are. That's what we do. Yeah, it's like Arrested Development where they couldn't figure out what uh, disease they were going to raise money for. So they just said uh, TBD. And then they, they people gave money because they wanted to fight TBD. And so there you go. I mean, but it's a wonderful title. But why did you want to do the show? Why do you want to explore talking politics and religion without killing each other? Why do we need to do that? So by, by the way, one, one appendix to that, that story is that I, one of my first guests on the show was Julie Mason. It was great. She was a press pool reporter. And then she's had this great show on XM, uh, the POTUS channel. And she came on the show and I said, we're thinking about changing. And we were toying with something like voices from the purple district or something like that. And she said, no, I really like the title of your show. I know it's long, but it says exactly who you are and what you do. So. The reason that it really resonated is because as the more engaged I got in politics, both at the local level as well as the national level, what I realized was there are any number of issues that are important. And everyone has their top issue or top two or three issues or top politicians. A lot of folks, to your point of what you were saying earlier, and if folks who aren't listening to this, go back to the first part and listen to that too. But to, to your point of what you were saying earlier, a lot of folks just don't even think about it. They wear the D hat and they vote all D. Couldn't imagine ever voting for anybody with an R before their name. So there's that. But I realized it was, especially when Sarah Palin became the nominee under McCain in 2008, I realized that really the biggest issue was we don't know 
we don't know each other. We, we kind of do know each other, but we don't know each other. And we certainly don't know how to talk to each other. The Sarah Palin, as soon as her, her part of the campaign was being, what did she say? The difference between uh, soccer moms and, or hockey moms and uh, bulldogs was lipstick or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. I, I realized that she had, she was at her best when she was mischaracterizing, overly generalizing, and even vilifying and demonizing anybody who wasn't in that particular circle, whether it was, you could define it by the Fox News audience or uh, Tea Party, the emerging Tea Party movement. There was something about that, that no, that I'm not, I don't consider myself liberal or demo, I'm a true independent, but I have a lot of dear friends and family who are very liberal or progressive or even center left. And she's not describing my friends. She's not describing my family. And by the way, I still want to be able to have conversations with people across our differences. So that was the political side. The religious side is I grew up very observantly Jewish, but I became a Christian in my late twenties. So I realized that it, it was hard to have that conversation. If you could imagine flying back the night before Thanksgiving, taking a red eye, my parents were living in Jersey at the time and sitting out on the front porch, having a conversation with my Orthodox Jewish father about why his son became a, a born again, Bible thumping Christian. Oh so, boy. wow. Just That's having those conversations for you yeah. right there. My gosh. It's like the chosen, except uh, worse. So I, I got to tell you this, since you mentioned it, I have a friend who writes comedy, he writes screenplays and he wanted to write a story about a Jew from Jersey who becomes a Christian. So I said, I told my dad, he, this guy, his name's Greg. He wants to interview him. He wants to write a comedy about a Jew from Jersey who becomes a Christian. My father's first thought, my first, his first response was, but there's nothing funny about that. <laughs> That's actually funny, Dad. It's going to go in the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, mo most Jews are like, we've seen this movie before. <laughs> it didn't go great. We're, we're didn't okay go well. with no sequels. But, uh, you know, this is why one of the reasons that your show and I think the crossover vibe between our shows appealed to me is that you're going for something, and I'm teasing about the name, but you're going for something explicitly. You you're saying directly to people, I believe that there is, as Nixon put it, a vast silent majority. Mm. I believe that people do want this, despite the fact that we know that negative advertising, as much as people say they, they hate it, they actually like it, they respond to it, it works, and people get more information from negative ads than they do from positive ads. Even though people say that they want things to go smoothly and for people to get along, they go right to they go right to bomb throwers and the, and the fighting and the, and the feistiness. And so my response to this on beyond politics and on the YouTube channel that, that I do on the blue amp channel on YouTube is I'm not quite so explicit about it. I deal it a little bit more from the bottom of the deck. I'm much broader, much more kind of comedy. And I'm a little edgier on YouTube, but what I try and do is I try and deal some substance, but I deal it a little bit more from the bottom of the deck. And on Beyond Politics, we're doing, we're trying to do much the same thing that you're doing. We have this weekly roundtable show with our good friend, a Republican political consultant, Alicia Preston. And we're trying to sort of show, not tell the audience that we can talk about politics and religion without killing each other. Yeah. And I, I firmly believe it's one of the things that you and I talked about off the air that I think is really important about podcasting is that podcasting is a is an intimate experience. People are listening on earbuds 
It's a personal experience. They're doing other things. They're in the car, they're doing dishes, whatever it is. When they have the voices in their ears and they really want to hang with people who are a good hang. They want to, they want to get that good feeling vibe. Like you walk into a party, you see a group of people and you kind of, they, they, they wave you over and, and you hang out with them. And I think it's, a, I, I just, I, I really appreciate what you're doing on your show. And I'm also really interested in the fact that you're being right up front about it. It's like, yeah. this is the project. This is what we're aiming for. And I know that like all of the sex violence and whatnot out there in, in politics sells, but I think that there is an audience for something that's a little calmer, a little more nuanced and a little more peaceful. Yeah. No, to your point, there's been a lot of studies. We had Denver Riggleman on the show a few months ago. And he's, he's done a number of studies that we've read others that the a appealing to anger and fear literally chemically is the equivalent of crack and the addiction, the high that people get, it's chemically the same thing. So it does work. I mean, at best, it's maybe the equivalent of fast food, McDonald's, Burger King, it works. It's addictive in its own ways, but it's a lot easier to sell. McDonald's sells a lot more hamburgers than Whole Foods or Trader Joe's sells Brussels sprouts, I'm guessing. But so we're trying to do Brussels sprouts, but we're trying to do it with a little bit of deep frying bacon. Yeah, it's, I've <laughs> joked to my friends that what I'm trying to do is to operate a Michelin one-star restaurant on my podcast <laughs> next to a McDonald's. Yeah. And it's hard because you and I also, we're similar, our, our shows are similarly rated on listen notes, top one and a half percent, top 2%, somewhere in there, yeah. right? And what's hard for most people is it's hard to tell the difference from our competitors out there that aren't trying to do the same thing. It all sounds the same. We're all talking about politics. The other folks are often trying to kill each other. So that's, that's, that's challenging. Why? I, I kind of love the aspect of your personal story here. I'm a Jewish dude who married a, a pretty devout Catholic. And that was actually one of the best parts of getting married was sort of like, coming up with a hybrid wedding ceremony and having my wife's deacon and my uncle who had studied to be a rabbi kind of co-officiate our wedding, reading Cokie Roberts and Steve Roberts book about <laughs> interfaith marriages together yeah. and like thinking about it. And like the way that's kind of, as we've had to think about raising our kids, kind of that straddle point between two faiths, I think it's one of the most interesting, invigorating things about my marriage for me. Like I've really appreciated it. You've kind of gone through this journey internally. How on earth did you end up as a Bible-thumping Christian? So I hope I don't make this a long story. So cut me off at any point. It's podcasting. It's okay. I've always asked. I, I can remember being in our shul on Yom Kippur and reading the part of the service that gets to, what is this? Not the Song of Solomon, the other book that's attributed to Solomon, his book of wisdom. And it it. it well, now it's, you're giving me Hebrew school stress all over again. Sorry, Ecclesiastes. So sure. there's sections yes. from Ecclesiastes. And I remember it resonating, even as a little kid, even before, like I, I wasn't even a bar mitzvah yet, but thinking about these big existential questions and always searching. And every time I thought I came to a huge epiphany, there was some other set of questions that just opened up. So I've always been a seeker that way. I've always... I, I was going to say, I've always believed in God, but the, the two most irreducible beliefs that I hold are that there is a God, but the, the even bigger one is that I'm not God. <laughs> so there is a God and I ain't him. 
or her or whatever. So those are the most irreducible beliefs that I hold. So as I searched for these, as I grappled with these big existential questions, the nature of God and man's why we're here, I, in my late 20s, I was seeking out uh, mentorship, not necessarily in a spiritual realm, because I was on, I was doing a lot of reading on other faiths and philosophies throughout my late teens and into my 20s. But I was looking for mentorship from a business standpoint, how to be a good husband. We were starting to think about having kids. And this one guy in particular kept on giving me books that were useful to be a better husband, to be an effective business person, to be good in the community. But they were all Jesus books. And it really pissed me off. <laughs> so I finally, and he happened to be like me. He grew up Jewish, but became a Christian at a certain point. And I was like, Hal, better than anybody. Quit with the proselytization. You know, Jesus is all well and good for you. Keep it to yourself, man. Just give me a freaking book that doesn't have some quotes from the New Testament. So he said, okay, I will if you read this book. <laughs> and the book, it was it's straight on. It was right on the money. It was, I think it was called More Than a Carpenter. I'm pretty sure that's the one. It, it was a Josh McDowell book. And it was, I was thoroughly annoyed by it and not convinced by its premise. But it was the first time that I'd seen any empirical case anyone trying to make an empirical case for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So long story short, it opened up I, a whole world of inquiry. I studied, I, I looked for other books. I came across some th intros to theo Christian theology, like C.S. Lewis's work, Mere Christianity. Mm. It was one of the books I read. And long story short, I got to the point where I could finally read the New Testament. And when I read the New Testament, the first one I read, the first uh, little mini book I read was James. And it was perfect for me to read because it starts with to the 12 tribes. So basically it's talking to me as a Jew. And then I went to the beginning of the book and the Jesus, the character of Jesus that I encountered as I was reading was a very Jewish Jesus. I don't say that to be funny. He literally is, he historically, he was a Jew, but the way that- He's our most successful product ever. Oh man. Well, yeah, he sells a lot of books to this day, but he, his, like when I came to the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't know it was a sermon on the Mount. To me, as a guy who grew up in an Orthodox synagogue, it looked like a Devar Torah, and it was the most brilliant Devar Torah I'd ever read or heard. When he was when he was engaging with the Pharisees, a lot of people look at Matthew 23, for example, as, oh, the Pharisees, the Jews. That's where a lot of, frankly, anti-Semitism is based on. But to me, that just like looked like the Kaddish after Torah service, and we're all sitting around the table yelling at each other. This is just what we do. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I'm so glad you went there because to me, what you do on your show, your show is so Jewish in a way because <laughs> it's, and I truly mean that in the best possible way. The thing that maybe is the best part of the Jewish cultural tradition is the Jewish religious tradition of debate and textual inquiry and dissection of text and it's this entire, when you learn about Judaism, there is the written law, and then there's the oral law, the, what's called the whole rabbinic tradition, thousands of years of rabbis sitting around debating, arguing, dissecting, analyzing, and being able to do that under one roof as, hey, we're all in this together and we're united but we can argue and we can go at each other. 
And I mean, there was actually, there was this great episode of Frasier where for a while they have to pretend to be Jewish because Frasier is pretending to be Jewish. And so he tries to get into an argument with his dad and they start yelling these terrible things at each other. They break down in tears. They're like, why did we think we could do this? We're not <laughs> Jewish. But the thing is, Jewish people can do it. And it, the idea of talking about politics and religion and deep differences of opinion without killing each other is maybe the most Jewish idea available. <laughs> is, is that, was that in the back of your mind? Is that, you're am giving, I, am I if, my if my father ever listens to this, you're giving him such naches right now. Oh, you know, he's Jewish. Yeah, he has the Jesus thing. He's always wrong about Mashiach, but he's still Jewish. What? It is very, I, I can't shake who I am. I'm very proud of my heritage. I'm very proud of my father and grandfather and, and my ancestry and the thousands and thousands of years that we've survived against all odds. And I think that the grappling with philosophy, theology, scripture is definitely our superpower. It's part of what's given us the, whatever it is, the ability to survive the Babylonians and the Persians and the Romans, and they're all gone and we're still here. And I, I think that has, I haven't, I, I should put a lot more thought to this, but I think there's, uh, there's something to that. But the, the thing is, everybody says, don't talk about, I don't want to talk about politics. Well, what the hell are we going to talk about? You know what I mean? Like, how do we live together? How do we live among each other? We're clearly not doing it very well. If you look at January 6th, that obviously was a heightened day and a, a tragic day, but that that wasn't a coincidence. That didn't ha just happen out of nowhere. And by the way, that those sentiments and those feelings have not only not gone away, they've been papered over and memory hold and all kinds of terrible things. Why? Because we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about religion with our neighbor, our very neighbor, this guy right here. He's a wonderful man. He watches Fox News all day, every day. He listens to Hannity and uh, what's his name? Not Rogue. He listens to uh, Bongino in his car, but he's still my buddy. He's still Angel. Right, right. We gotta be able to talk about politics. Well, and to, to build on that point for a second, it is the aim of the authoritarian to turn people off from discussion of politics. Yeah. To make the whole thing so unseemly, so distasteful, so, so downright, uh, such a turnoff yeah. that you just end up with a feeling of, I don't want to deal. You guys deal with it. Right. That is, that's the entire authoritarian playbook. And so at a time in America where, look, I, you and I both have on, talk to, respect people of both parties, and for me as a Democrat, that very much includes Republicans, right? I practice it, right? Like literally some of my best friends are Republicans, okay? Yeah. And, and so the only line, the only bright line that I maintain is I cannot countenance support for Donald Trump because he has entered into an authoritarian project. His reelection would mean the, the end of the Republic. And if you can get past that, though, like if you can and you can engage, it is his aim as part of that for us not to listen to your show, to not do what yeah. you're doing on your show. Of course, the more we do it, the less hold he has. And I am able to I, there's a guy I coach basketball with and he's a 
he's a pretty staunch Trump guy, but we can have conversations. We can still, and we can still talk about politics. And the more we do it, the better off we are and the less bad I feel. It, and it's the same thing. This is the other thing I really like about your show is that the politics and religion, it's the old joke. It's like, avoid those conversations at, at the Thanksgiving table. But it's through, I mean, honestly, it's through marrying my wife and having to engage with Christianity and Catholicism and go to an awful lot of church services, going sitting through a lot of masses, having her come to a lot of synagogue services. And we're like, this is the same stuff. Well, I had a priest back at our church in New Hampshire who gave the best biblical analysis of the passage in Deuteronomy that, that leads to Jews putting the mezuzah on their, on their oh, yeah. door. Yeah. And he gave this whole brilliant explanation of it and was like, wow, what, what school did you go to? So like, right, right. I mean, the more I've engaged on what could be a real divide, the, the, the happier I've been, the more comfortable I've yeah. been. And I feel like the same thing can still be true in politics, even with Trump people. I just can't, ultimately, that's the one, that's the one area I can't get to. I can't go along with that project because it truly is antithetical to everything I believe in this country. So let me ask you this. Do you still hold an exit ramp open to folks who voted for Trump, who are still seemingly supportive of Trump? And if so, do you make them pay, like being a Jew that's married to a Catholic, guilt is a big thing in both traditions. Like you, we invented poor children. Guilt, Catholics perfected, perfected it, Perfected right? it, yes, right, exactly. So would you make them pay, feel really guilty on their way off the rent? Or would you say, welcome, finally. It's a, like we had Kinzinger on the show. He voted for Trump in 2020. But yeah. always happened. And like, welcome off the tr Trump train, buddy. The exit ramp was waiting and warm for you. I'm very much informed by an experience that was related to me by a former colleague of mine. Back in 2008, I hired a, a young congressional staffer when I was the chief of staff for my current co-host on Beyond Politics, Paul Hodes. I was his chief of staff. We hired a young guy, a brilliant young guy, young staffer, who's a gay man. And we were we would engage in lively very rabbinic lunchtime discussions about the merits of civil unions versus marriage equality. And I have never been more delighted to be wrong analytically, as many people were at the time, about yeah. what the American people could deal with. I thought that we needed to have civil unions as a way station for people to kind of mentally get a little bit more comfortable, and then we'd get to marriage. Well, the Burja fell seven years later. Great. I, I was wrong. Fantastic. Delighted to be wrong. That young man told a story later on where he got stopped on the street by a guy who was asking for directions or something. And he and the guy said, hey, you look like Tom Brady or something. No homo. And Trevor, my friend, who is gay, said, well, actually, I am a homo, but hey, thanks. <laughs> and the other dude says, oh, right on. And they fist bumped. Yeah. And Trevor gave him directions and they, they went their separate ways. We are never going to defeat deplorables by being insufferables. Mm. And Hillary Clinton's fundamental mistake was to dismiss 
people as deplorables. What deplorable means is that you are immune to logic, reason, and persuasion, that you're so closed off that you can't change your mind. If you have changed your mind, if you've taken that off-ramp like Adam Kinzinger did, by definition, you are not a deplorable. But what will impede that off-ramp, what will close it off is if you're an insufferable. Right. And you make them pay that penalty. If Trevor had launched into a big speech to this guy, hey, you bigot, <laughs> like right. he never would have had that moment. And think about that person's experience. Did he feel more open-minded toward gay people? Did he feel kind of welcomed in that interaction? Yeah. One thing I held out on, on you in this story is that Trevor worked for the human rights campaign okay. and he worked for political acceptance of things like marriage equality. And one of their key tactics was to meet people where they were and to not judge them. You can give me this much. You can come along this far. Okay, good for you. I'm yeah. that, great. That I'm thrilled by that. And I'm not going to judge you because you haven't made it the rest of the way. So I guess my answer would be, no, I, I would never make people pay a penalty for coming to the off-ramp. You've come to the off-ramp. The scales have fallen from your eyes. It doesn't matter when it happens. That's one of the nice things that Christianity informs us about. It doesn't matter when it happens. There's still a pathway to redemption. I think that's one of the reasons that Christianity is so appealing. And so I don't know. That's my view on it. I suspect you feel the same way. Do you feel the same way? Very similarly. You've touched on a lot of things that I've been learning and articulated better than I could. I'll tell you a quick story that I learned from Jonathan Rausch, one of the greatest uh, observers of what's happening sociologically and the way that we think. And a Former guest it, on our show as well. I, oh, big he's fan. Big I fan. Love, yeah. I love, John and I have become friends and it's one of the greatest gifts of doing this project is uh, the gift of being able to become friends with people like John and a good friend of his who's become a friend of mine as well, Pete Wayner. John shares a story. He was an early activist uh, going back to the early 90s of trying to legalize gay marriage. He said it turned after, I forget if it was 04, I it must have been 04, when Karl Rove got um, initiatives on state ballots around the country that were basically anti-gay marriage. And it, it helped Bush win his second term, if I'm remembering it correctly. What Rausch's uh, activism uh, started turning after that was basically, well, we all know somebody who's gay. We all love somebody who's gay. So to start to humanize the, as opposed to it being an issue, it became a, hum, a human endeavor that someone I know, someone I loved happens to be gay. What's it to me if they just wanna be happy and, and love someone? So that really turned it for him. And that's really a larger point is that the more that certain, whether it's a media entity or a political campaign, the more they are successful at generalizing, they're, the more they're able to mischaracterize and mm. the better able they are to vilify. And that's what I find for folks who don't go to fundamentalist churches. I, I've now been a Christian for well over 20 years. But what I've learned is that the driving issue, my kids went to a Christian school for a decade or so. The driving issue, what you could talk to folks about guns. You could talk to folks even about abortion, some contentious issues. But the, what drove it all was them, this idea of them. 
Well, they're trying to take away our guns. Well, mm. they want to kill our babies. Well, they're and it starts in probably 1987 with Rush Limbaugh. You know, the left is trying to. The left is going. Oh, that's to. uncanny, man. Whoa. <laughs> By my book, Clinton is stupid. I mean, he just it's incredible because he made an entire industry now exists because of that uh, that that premise. But it's basically the for me the number one issue was being able to talk to each other. Because the number one issue that drives folks, whether they would admit it or not, is they see an enemy that needs to be fought, right? That's what Trump's campaign was about in 2020. He's fighting for us. And now it's even worse. I am your retribution. Against who? For what? No, no, we just know we hate, those guys hate us and we hate them. And who are those guys? I don't know. Those liberals, the left. So if we, the, the kryptonite against that, no, that's not the right word for it. But you know what I mean? Like the antibodies is a better word. The antibodies for that disease is to talk to each other, is to humanize each other, is to ask, instead of like getting into a conversation with somebody who feels differently, say about Trump, a politician, or about a particular issue, instead of like waiting for my turn to throw a perfect rhetorical grenade, the best retort actually is what Jesus often did. He answers a question with a question. Well, why do you say that I am good? Or ask a question about the person. Ask someone, oh, wow, I, I, that's, that's an interesting point of view. I don't necessarily share that point of view. But how did you come to arrive at that perspective? What, tell me about your life. Tell me about you. Monty Guzman in her book, I Never Thought of It That Way, which is, by the way, a great, it should be like required reading for everyone who is at all interested in civics. I Never Thought of It. It just came out a little over a year ago. Monica Guzman. She describes a story of taking a bunch of friends from, I think it's Kings County or something near Seattle, to a five-hour drive away to uh, a northern county in Oregon that is 80% Trump country. And they just got to know each other over the course of a day. And one of the guys who participated was a farmer in that Trump county. And I think the question was, what do you wish folks who don't know you what do you wish they knew about you? Mm -hmm. And he picked up a sandwich off the table. He said, I just wish you knew how what I grow in my field got to your plate on this sandwich. Just know me and know my work and know my family's work and just know something about me. Before you assign a data point, like I happened to vote for Trump last election, could you get to know me and what my story is and how I got here and why I feel so strongly about things like tariffs, for example? So those are the antibodies. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. When I was in grad school, I took a course on persuasion and I gave myself a cheat sheet. I, I tried to distill all the lessons from the course onto one page. I still have it actually beside me in my office. I refer to it all the time. One of the key principles is that listening is persuasive and it's it doesn't work on its own. It's necessary, but not sufficient. But it is a key to unlocking everything that's going to follow. And when you get people talking, for example, my Trump fan friend, when you get people talking, you frequently find, first of all, this is how American POWs were brainwashed in the Korean War, is mm. their captors would ask them, can you say one thing you don't like about the United States? And that would be the pathway to psychologically unlocking the idea of maybe I'm against the United States. And it's also in a less nefarious way. It's one of the ways you can deprogram people is, are there things you don't like about Donald Trump or anything? When you talk to people and you really listen, like you described to their 
to where they're coming from. What is it they like? What is it they don't like? Are there things that they can admit that they actually kind of like about Joe Biden? And you kind of build from there and you truly listen and engage with them. It is amazing how much common ground you can find, which is why, to your earlier question, I would never shut off the avenue for anyone who's still kind of a seeker on the road there. Because I, again, it, it kind of comes down to we are at a time of measurably maybe record, not if it's not the record, it's pretty darn close, measurably record partisan division. And that kind of division and the authoritarian figures like Donald Trump that are enabled by that kind of division, it thrives in silence. Yeah. It thrives without the kind of project that you're maintaining on your podcast. And the less we're trying to engage. And I, look, it, it's not always as simple and reductive as, oh, why don't we all just get along, listen to it? Why is there only, why is there only fighting? Look, it, it takes work. Some things are worth fighting for, yeah. okay? Like for people like Elise Stefanik, who you mentioned before, who believes that the January 6th insurrectionists are, quote, hostages. By the way, I defy her to say anything while Donald Trump drinks a glass of water. She is a complete <laughs> sock puppet for him. And there's also a wonderful photo, you can Google it, of her cowering in the seats as the, yeah. as the hostages were breaking yeah, down that. the door to murder all the members of Congress. So right, spare right. me, Elise. Some things are worth fighting, okay? And so if you have people who are being hateful, who are lying, who are calling January 6th insurrectionists hostages. I don't think that listening to them more is the solution. But I do think that like the Hidden Tribes report from several years ago that found there's about 7% very angry, loud people motivated on the left, about 7% angry, motivated, loud people on the right. Yeah. Then there's 85% that they call the exhausted majority. Right. I do think the exhausted majority is real. And I think that for most people who fall into it, yes, listening and and listening in a kind of, this sounds cheesy, but listening in a compassionate way, not being an insufferable, it works and it's yeah. necessary. Well, that, that it goes back to not to, I don't get commission if I sell Monica's books, but it goes back to the core premise of her work. And now she's, she's a leader at, Braver Angels, a great organization. But if you hold, if I can do one thing and hold the posture of just leaving room for the possibility that at some point in the conversation, I can say, huh, I never thought of it that way. It's a pretty good compass to hold on to. That's such a great turn of phrase that it's brilliant. It's so great. Yeah. So just to the counter of that really quick story, I was curious about a Republican, a state legislator who's now running for state Senate here in California, Republican. I was curious about her because she did vote for Newsom's amendment to the Constitution to protect a woman's right to choose as a Republican. And she was also, when she was in the state assembly, she helped develop California's Problem Solvers Caucus. So those oh. are two reasons alone that I was curious about this Republican politician. Not that I need a reason. I'm kind of right of center in, in a lot of ways. But I had a conversation with Pete Dominic, who's pretty far left. Pete Dominic turned me from curious a strong supporter of Suzette Valadares. Why? Because he beat the crap out of me. He said, oh, you could never vote for anybody who's a Republican. She's terrible on abortion. Look, here's an organization that says she is. And I'm like, Pete, you got to slow your roll, man. Like, 
you're beating me up because I'm even considering the possibility of voting for a state level. Uh, and he just kept on pounding away at me and just uh, shaming me and, and trying to embarrass me and beat me into submission. And I'm like, you know what? Thank you. You just convinced me I am now a strong vocal supporter of Suzette Valderas for state Senate. But that's the point. It's that, and I've made them the same as I've been on the other side of that. My son, he's 20 now. At the time he was 18, he was a new, newly 18-year-old adult. At first was skeptical of getting the vaccine when it was first being developed. And just being skeptical, he man, dog pot on the rabbit, man. He just yeah. did not get any oxygen to even consider it. And we all turned him into a total anti-vaxxer. And I was part of the problem. So I learned a few months later, I said, listen, man, I'm sorry how I behaved. Yes, I'd still like you to get the vaccine. I love you. I care about you. But let's just talk, man. Let's just have a conversation. What, why do you feel the way you feel? And that's when he told me, well, you guys all, you know, didn't even let me think, didn't even let me share an opinion. Like, so he was like, to hell with you guys. I'm going to go my own way, you know, and we convinced him to be an anti-vaxxer and made him even more extreme. But I all, we all, I think we also have to know that there are, to your point earlier, there are limitations. As Yuval Levin said, right. you know, at the end of the day, you could just get to the point at thanks. We talked before Thanksgiving, you could get to the point and say, I really strongly disagree with you. Now pass the gravy. <laughs> so there right, are things right. you just got to like call it a day. Right. You're not going to look. I mean, it's a cardinal rule of politics that we've blown way past in the last few years that never make comparisons to the Nazis because it won't go well for you. Well, now we do it all the time. All and the time. With good reason, because Donald Trump invokes Adolf Hitler. I mean, it's like, wow, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. You weren't going to listen compassionately to the Nazis. You had to defeat them. You had yes. to fight them, right? Yeah, we, there's limitations. <laughs> some people, you do have to fight. And I'm there for that too. On the other hand, there are, I'd rather lose an election to a conservative Republican like Nikki Haley. I have said many times on my show that I am rooting for Nikki Haley. I want her to defeat Donald Trump in full awareness that she is a stronger candidate against Joe Biden, a much stronger candidate against Joe Biden than Donald Trump, because Donald Trump represents a clear and present danger to the continuation of the Republic. Nikki Haley does not. I profoundly disagree with Nikki Haley. She would do, in my view, great damage to America with the judges she would appoint and with the policies that she would try to enact. But all of those things are recoverable. The genius of the Republic and the Constitution is that there are self-healing mechanisms built in and there are correctives built in through the democratic process. If we can maintain the democratic process, this is the point of the democracy, I'm, yeah. I'm a chill for your network right now. If we can maintain people's fair access to voting, if we can maintain fair election rules that allow people to truly represent, get represented, get their views represented in fair ways. If the people's opinions can be represented in their government within the limits established by the constitution, then we can surmount virtually any so social problem we have virtually any policy problem we have. If we don't like the direction we're going, we can correct for it. What we can't correct for is an authoritarian who would end the democratic experiment. And 
So that is a bright line for me. And I'd rather lose an election to a Nikki Haley than lose the country to yeah. a Donald Trump. And you that's a, not of, a popular opinion. No, you speak of Nikki Haley the way that Liz Cheney speaks of Joe Biden. Right. But there, that's the big public square where we can all meet and have these reasonable conversations, even from the far sides of still the public square, not the one with the guillotine in the middle where, you know, the zealots are all taking people to the guillotine, but the one where we can actually speak as neighbors across our differences. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah. What's your TPNR question? Because I feel like we're getting toward the end here. We're getting it. And we're boy, getting it. we maintain that curiosity gap an awful long time. We've teased we this long enough. What's the question? So we'll ask the question, and then I want to make sure that we talk about how folks can find you. You've dropped the name of, of your show and all that stuff. So I just want to make sure our yeah, audience likewise, can really likewise. find you easily. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. The TPNR question is, what do you think each of – we've already been talking about this, by the way, but I just want to really nail it straight on. What do you think we each can do to be better able to share space with or have better conversations with, even nurture relationships with people across those differences? So people who think differently than we do, who have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do, how can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other, or is it even possible? All right, I'm going to give a sneaky answer here. Oh, this is so sneaky. I feel bad about this. I feel bad do about it, this in it. advance. I'm going to do it. I used to... Okay, when when I started doing this podcast, when I started Beyond Politics, is the answer listening to your podcast? Because I think that is part of the answer. It's a me. <laughs> I started with I was producing six hours a week of radio, which was too much. I was doing four podcasts off wow. of that, which was way too much. Yeah. So I had to pare it down, and now I'm just doing Beyond Politics, and the thing that was the last to go that was the greatest regret was I had a show called Great Ideas. And I invited policy experts who were arch conservatives and arch liberals who sit at think tanks in Washington and, and around the country, real experts. And I invited them on to talk about their ideas. And I invited some major conservatives. I invited real passionate conservatives who had constructive ideas to make a case for it. I three times I had Mitt Romney's budget guy. Oh wow. From the 20 on the show. He's a brilliant dude. We're friends. He's smart and he makes well-reasoned arguments for things like, "Hey, the federal government's doing so much, doing way too much. Wouldn't we be better off if we devolved the responsibility of the federal government onto the states?" And I don't fully agree. But he makes some interesting points. Yeah. And my aforementioned very liberal mother, we were listening to it together on a road trip once. And she said he made some really interesting points. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. I don't, I'm not sure I agree, but it's a perspective that I don't hear very often. That's all I want. That's, That's all I idea. want. So what can I do? Yeah. I've wanted to bring back, maybe not as its own show. But I want to reinvigorate the process of having more of those kinds of people onto Beyond Politics, even though my audience, I think, is kind of a little bit more left-leaning because we're Democrats. And that's I, I, I want to do more of that. And so I'm going to be able to do that if more people subscribe to my show and I, uh, <laughs> and I keep building this project up. So that's that was the sneaky part right there. But I'm being earnest about it. I That's something I've wanted to do and I intend to do. And look, if people are writing those reviews, 
let me know. Is that the kind of thing you'd like to hear more of? And I will be responsive. I will do more. What about you? What oh, can you do? Well, yeah, I think we're doing it. I, I, we're doing our best. I, I think if there's anything I can do differently is to recognize, because listen, I do the show not as the expert, but as the student who's in most need of the answers and the remedy to this problem. Because there are times when I'm in these conversations and I lose, I just lose it. I, I tip over and I act exactly the wrong way. And I start fighting and engaging in ways that aren't edifying and aren't persuasive. So I think what I can do is continue to work on the virtues, what, what in Christianity we call the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control in myself to embody those virtues, especially in these conversations, especially when it's hard, but to seek out conversations and relationships with folks that I know feel differently than I do, uh, but to find opportunities over a whiskey or a coffee or a sandwich or anything to really talk about it, to really go after it. The, my dad had a really hard time when I became a Christian. And for three or four years, we had some really fraught conversations, heated conversations. His first letter to me was 10 pages, single spaced, spelling out all the reasons from every angle where I can't, I must, I shouldn't, no possible way become a Christian. It's emotional, it was filial, it was philosophical, it was theological, but he wrote to me and we kept on talking and we stayed in that relationship because he determined more than anything, whatever I called myself, what was more important was having a relationship with his son. So I think if we just, if we enter into every conversation with that Mani Guzman exhortation, I never thought of it that way, but also in a way it's like earning the right for another conversation, earn, earning the right to come back, finding a way to keep in that conversation. I think that's what we can do. Your show, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Hopefully people have already listened to the first episode, the first of this two-parter. So you're already familiar with it. If you're on Apple Podcasts, just hit, they call it follow. Why don't they call it subscribe? We all say subscribe, yeah. but I guess they want to call it something different. Whatever platform you're on, hit that subscribe or follow button, please. And we'll put the link right in the show notes here in Beyond, Poli Beyond Politics. You're going to do the same thing on your side of the ledger. We'll have the link for Beyond Politics here. And we're also both engaged in a project to get more people. You can only really fully do this in the Apple Podcast app. You can rate shows on all the platforms, but Apple seems to be the one that really wants you to write a review. So yeah. just scroll all the way down to the episode list, click that write a review. It's like a little pen symbol and just say a few nice words, give a five-star review to both shows. Uh, it helps both of us out. And we'll, as George W. said, We'll make the pie higher for both shows and we'll keep this vibe going. <laughs> terrific, terrific. And just to make sure for the TPNR audience, how can folks find you? We'll put it in the show notes, but just so uh, for folks that are listening, how can they find you and all the great work that you're doing? It's beyond politics. And if you're into the YouTube thing, and like I said, we're a little cheekier on YouTube. It's short <laughs> videos, commentaries. We do put clips from the podcast in there, but we go for a little bit more humor. We're a little ruder sometimes, but we do try and deal some of the substance from the bottom of the deck. We're just, we're appropriate for YouTube. So that's the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. And we hope you'll subscribe to both of them. Sounds good. Sounds All good. All right. 
I'm going to take us out here. I think we're on my show. I don't even know where we are. I don't know where we are anymore either. I don't either. know where we are either. Corey, Nathan, thanks so much for having me on your show and for being on mine. And we will catch up again real soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on.